So Hebrews chapter 2, and we're going to read the first four verses together. It's not a long section this evening, just the first four verses as we're going through this uh, verse by verse. So let's read them together. (laughs) Hebrews chapter 2 and verse number 1. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest at any time we should let them slip. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord, and was confirmed unto us by them that heard him, God also bearing them witness, both with signs and wonders, and with divers miracles and gifts of the Holy Ghost, according to his own will. (coughs) So that's our brief reading this evening. And what we do have here is the first of five warning sections in this epistle. And we've seen the last two studies that the writer to the Hebrews, well, we don't know who he is, but he's writing to people with an evident um, grasp of the Old Testament, quite a, a serious grasp of the Old Testament. And we've seen that they likely were Christians who had a Jewish background, who had been saved from that context, and were now struggling, they were being persecuted, and they were in danger of drifting back to the things that they'd left behind. In particular, the external um, aspects of Judaism, the temple, the priesthood, the sacrifices, the diet, all of these things which were external, which were quite impressive actually, they had left behind and they had swapped, if you like, all of these things for the Lord Jesus. And the Lord Jesus himself is the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament things that they had uh, been practicing and their lives had been structured around. So that they now are going to be reminded by the writer to the Hebrews that in their danger of drifting back to these things, they were losing sight of the greatness and the superiority of the Lord Jesus to all these things that they left behind. And how that he was greater than the great patriarchs that they had they really uh, looked up to from the Old Testament, such as Moses and Joshua and so on, and that he was greater than the the priesthood, he was greater than the great uh, priests and the high priests of the Old Testament that they revered. He was even greater than the sacrifices that the priests offered and that the temple as well, he was greater than that. And right through the book of Hebrews, the superiority of the Lord Jesus over all of these things of the Old Testament is laid out in some detail. But it's not just an academic study, the book of Hebrews. There are these sections within the book where the writer stops and applies it. And in particular, there are five key sections when he does that. And he teaches and teaches and then he stops. And on the basis of what he's been teaching, he then makes the application. And it's a very practical application from what he has been teaching. And that's where we've arrived at in chapter 2. So on the basis of what he has taught in chapter 1, he is now going to apply that and he's going to bring a warning, a practical exhortation, a practical warning. Now we know that because if you look at chapter 2 and verse number 1, you've got this key link word, therefore. Therefore we ought to give the more earnest So that word tells us that this section is closely linked to what has gone before. That word, therefore, uh, as it appears in the authorised text, or the similar word that is translated in whatever version you're using, is a key word that connects what's gone before with what is going to come after. So this section isn't in isolation. It is connected and flowing out of what has gone before. And what has gone before? Well, we've seen the sevenfold glory of the Son of God in the first few verses of Hebrews chapter 1. And amongst other things, we saw that the Lord Jesus is called the heir of all things. We saw that he's called the one through whom God made the world. We saw, we saw that he's, he's called the radiance of the glory of God, the exact representation of God's nature, the upholder of all things by the word of his power. And we saw in our study the absolute superlative qualities and characteristics of the Lord Jesus presented right at the front of this book, right at the door, if you like. And these, every one of them, is a study in themselves. 
the sevenfold glory of Christ. And then we saw that he's superior to angels and we saw that angels were a very big deal to those within the Judaistic system. And they valued the angelic ministry of the Old Testament and they, they, they revered those archangel and the seraphim and the cherubim they were such a a part of the judaistic system and even a part of the furniture of the tabernacle and temple the representations of cherubim and when you think about gabriel and michael and so forth angels were a big deal to the jews and so the lord jesus is seen in chapter one as being superior to angels through whom the old covenant came so this new covenant is superior, not just because of its inherent superiority, but also the means by which it was delivered. The Lord Jesus is superior to angels. And there are seven Old Testament scriptural quotations which establish that superiority. And we saw that last time. Now it's important, because this is a practical section, to understand that understanding who Christ is and understanding the supremacy of Christ over angels, which is today particularly relevant when witnessing to Jehovah's Witnesses who don't agree with the conclusions of our study in chapter 1. They don't agree that Christ in his deity as the Son of God is supreme and superior <coughs> to angels they believe that the Lord Jesus um, is in fact Michael I think it is Michael or perhaps Gabriel I think it's Michael that they think um, he's the New Testament equivalent of Michael in the Old Testament and so it's important that we understand this if we're going to understand the gospel salvation itself and we see the link here one writer said this this is a warning that to neglect the salvation provided through him will incur far more serious consequences than in the case of those who transgress the word of the law spoken through angels. Now, the basic practical point to begin with is a simple one, but it's this, that the word of God always demands a reaction from those who hear it. Always. That's true today and it was true then that to be a passive receiver of God's word is actually to be disobedient to God's word. You remember scriptures that speak about being doers of the word, not just hearers only. And so to receive and not to be affected or react to what we receive makes the reception of the word less than it should be at the very best. There should be a response. There should be a reaction. There should be something in us that either is convicted, our conscience is touched, or, or we are educated in something that we perhaps were lacking. There, there should be a response to the word of God. And we're going to see that that's the basic idea in these first four verses. So the word therefore connects with what has gone before. Now look at what he says. He says, therefore we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Now, let's just break this down word by word. Literally, it could be rendered this, as this. It is exceedingly necessary that we give heed to what we have heard. It is exceedingly necessary. It's not an option. It's not that, and the writer is not saying, look, I'm teaching you this, you're learning about Christ, you're learning about his superiority. You can either take it or leave it. You can either respond or not. You can either be bothered or not be bothered. It's up to you. That's not what he's saying. He's saying it's absolutely vital. It is a command. It is something that is demanded of us. It's not an option. And as he thinks about our response to Christ, then again, this is not an isolated command in the book of Hebrews. He directs our attention time and time again to Christ and expects a, a response from us as we learn more about him. 
Hebrews 3 verse 1. Therefore, holy brethren, partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Again, later on in chapter 12. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, fixing our eyes on Jesus. So again and again, he's directing our attention to Christ. He's directing our attention to the Lord Jesus. He's the center of the gospel. He's the center of the Christian faith. And the more we get to know him and the more we know about him, then the more response and impact there should be. So that John Piper says this, the first command of this book is not work for Jesus. It's not what he says. But the first command of this book is listen to Jesus. He is not commanding us to work for him, but to watch him. And then he says this, referring 2 Corinthians 3, verse 18, which I'll leave you to look up yourself. He says, all our spiritual life changes come from that. Listening and watching Christ rather than working for him. The workings are now flowing from the listening and watching. So he's saying, you've heard, now respond. So he says we ought, and we ought to do what? Well, what does he say? We ought to give the more earnest heed. Now, what is this expression? To give the more earnest heed means a serious, a firm, a fixed setting of your mind upon what you have heard. It is a bowing, it is a bending of the will and a yielding of your will to what you have heard. It's an applying of your heart to what you've heard. It's a change of affection because of what you heard. It is bringing your whole being into conformity with what you have heard. This is the response that's expected. This is to give earnest heed. It is the whole person affected by the word of God. So it is receiving knowledge, that's correct. It is an exercise of faith in what you hear, that's correct as well. You trust what you hear. But it is the yielding of your will, it is obedience there too, and faith therein. You see, I think sometimes we are so spoiled by what we hear in terms of Bible teaching, particularly in this area, in the west of Scotland, that we become really blasé about God's word. We become very familiar and we become unaffected by it. I think if you travel to different, different places, not even without this country, but different places within this country, and also if you go to other countries where the word of God simply is not taught or where there are very few Bible teachers to teach the word of God. You discover this, that there is an appetite to learn. And there is a hunger after the word. I think maybe we are satiated in some sense and have become a little almost immune to the effect of God's word as it should be upon our lives. Listen, if that be so, then hear the challenge of God's word tonight. We, take the we out and put yourself in this verse. We'll see who the we are in a moment in context. But in terms of challenge, take the we and put yourself in there. Therefore, I ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which I have heard. Now that's true in the gospel for those who hear the gospel as people who are not saved. That is true. But it is no less true for us Christians who hear the word of God and God expects a response from us. So let's bring it right down into this room. Let's bring it right down into the context um, of our study through Hebrews and challenge yourself. Let's all challenge ourselves. What effect did the last two sessions of Bible teaching in the book of Hebrews have upon me. You see, there's no point thinking about this in a kind of um, academic, theoretical way. So if you've been here and you've heard about the glories of Christ 
and you've heard about the superiority of Christ. The question is, what effect did that have? If any. What effect did the study of it have for me in the preparation and delivery of this? What about you who listen? And not just in this room, but when you think about the books that you read at home or the articles that you read or whatever you read, and you think about other ministry that you might be listening to as well in various contexts, ask yourself the question, what effect is it having? Are we taking heed to the things which we hear? We are privileged, and as such, these verses will tell us all the more responsible because of Give more earnest heed, he says. Why? Well, look what he says. To the things which we have heard, well, we're going to see what that is as we come down because he's going to become more specific. So you can think about in the context of the epistle, chapter 1, and the things which follow, but you will we'll see that it goes beyond that, the things that they heard. He says this, lest at any time we should let them slip. So let them slip, let's take that expression. Now Vincent in his word studies, uh, which you'll get online with any um, uh, online Bible type software, he translates it, and it may be the ESV translation as well, he translates this expression as should drift past them. So they're not drifting, you're drifting. It's not that they're floating in a river past you, you're floating in the river past them. That's the idea. So you're in the drift, not, not the things which you've heard. They're steadfast, they're resolute, they don't change, they don't shift. That truth is eternal, that truth is fixed, that truth is immutable. Christ is immutable, nothing changes about him, nothing changes about the gospel. It is solid. What changes is whether we drift by it or not. So he says, lest at any time we should let them slip, or as Vincent says, we should drift past them. The verb itself means to flow, and the prefix preposition alongside. Put that together. It's the idea of something floating past. The word was used of a ring, a ring slipping from a finger or so on, things like that. Proverbs 4 verse 21 is the idea, let not my words flow past before thine eyes. That's the sort of idea to flow by. Westcott in his commentary says, here the metaphor is that of being swept along past the sure anchorage which is within reach. The Amplified uh, I thought it was the Amplified, I'm not sure, I haven't noted what it is, says, in fact, it's not the Amplified, therefore we must the more eagerly anchor our lives to the things that we should have been taught or that have been taught, lest the ship of life drift past the harbour of salvation and be wrecked and lost forever. So we're thinking in the particular context of salvation here. Let them slip, drift by. So many people have drift past the great truths of the gospel within touching distance. Some have even kind of been about them for quite some time before then drifting on. To whom is the warning directed? <clears throat> well, it is directed particularly to those who heard. That's what it says. We ought to give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. So it says here that this warning is to be taken by people who heard. Who heard the gospel. Who heard about this great salvation. And in the immediate context of this epistle, it's the people with the Jewish background that I've been referring to. And the initial warning is to the nation of Israel, to the Jewish people to whom the gospel came first. Remember that. And the writer includes himself by using the word we, which he uses five times in these verses, and uses it in the same way as Peter and John used the word in their preaching in Acts chapter 4. So in Acts chapter 4, verse 5 to 12, um, the gospel has been preached by Peter and John to a similar context. 
So you've got a context of Judaism and those who are going to be converted from Judaism. Peter and John use this word in Acts 4, verse 11 and 12 and say about the Lord Jesus. This is the stone which was set at naught of you builders, which has become the head of the corner. Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby who? We must be saved. You say, Peter, you are saved. John, you're saved as well. Why are you using that word we? Because it's an all-inclusive word. They're speaking about the context of the nation of Israel and their participation in that nation and the group. And he's saying, listen, we must be saved. And it's Christ alone. Same idea here. Therefore, we ought to give the more earnest heed to the things that we've heard lest any time we should let them slip. And by the way, it's also a warning to those who are I suppose an expression, intellectually convinced or adhere or affirm, agree with the gospel, maybe raised hearing the gospel and agreeing with it, not taking issue with it, but not saved. You see, if you've been brought up hearing the gospel, it may well be that you've never had a time in your life where you've disagreed with it. You've always agreed that there is a God. You've always thought that Jesus died on the cross for sinners. But you've never come to that point in your life where as an act of personal faith and personal repentance you trusted Christ as your own (coughs) saviour. And so you agree with the whole thing but you've never trusted. You're not actually saved. And the danger is for someone like that is that they live close to the gospel through family and then friends and then the friendships stretch and break and through time and changing circumstance you find yourself without those friendships and without close family nearby and then you start to drift. And then you start to drift by where the gospel is metaphorically and then before you know where you are you're way down the stream and the gospel's somewhere away. You drifted. This is to whom the warning is directed. Be careful lest at any time they slip, you slip. One writer said there is a tide in the affairs of men. Taken at its ebb leads to victory. Neglected, the shores and strands of time are strewn with the wreckage. There is a tide in the affairs of men. There's a turning point in people's lives. There's a point where people turn away, let go of their association with the gospel and drift. Now that is true of the gospel, but it's also true of the word of God as heard by Christians. That's just as true in our reception of the word, the things which we hear. There are turning points. There are critical moments in your life. There are times when you either engage with what you've heard and respond to it and react to it and take decisions based upon it and bring your life into conformity with it or you slip past and you let it go. Crucial moments in your life when the tide turned when you decided yes or no for whatever reason. When, and I'm applying this, when you as a Christian were faced with biblical truth and brought you to a point of decision in relation to something, whatever that may be. It could be relationship, it could be local church practice, it could be something in your workplace, it could be something in your family life, it could be whatever. And you are at the point of receiving the word And you're at that critical moment in your life. And you let it slip by. And off you go. He says this, give the more earnest heed to these things. Well, in verse number two, he's going to give a reason. Now, you see that at the beginning of the verse. 
with the word for. So you see the thought flow as it comes down through these verses. So the word therefore at the beginning of verse 1 links us to what has gone before. And then you've got the exhortation and the warning inherent to that exhortation in verse 1. So just by way of structure, you see the uh, exhortation, we ought to, and then the warning, lest at any time. And then you've got a, a kind of explanation here, a reason in verse number 2. For, if the word spoken by angels was steadfast, and then he's going to take that expression and expand it. So there's your expression that dominates verse 2. For if the word spoken by angels was steadfast. Now he's speaking about the certainty of judgment in the Old Testament. So he's, remember the context, they, they wanted to go back to the Old Testament things. And remember that they were thinking back the way. Now he then takes them back. And this is a reminder, this is them going back now in thought. And he says, remember that the word, and it's the, the word if is not of doubt, but of certainty, since, for if the word, or since the word spoken by angels was steadfast. Now, what's the word spoken by angels? Well, that is the deliverance of the Old Testament covenant, the law. Now, we get that, for example, in Deuteronomy chapter 33 and verse 2. It says, the Lord came from Sinai and rose up from Seir unto them. He shined forth from the Mount Paran, and he came with ten thousands of holy ones. From his right hand went a fiery law for them. And in the New Testament, in Acts chapter 7, when Stephen's preaching, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it, he says. So they received the law delivered by angels. So angels were ministers of the old covenant. The word spoken by or through angels. Now he says this, that word was steadfast. That word means an ESV, reliable. It was proved to be reliable. Now watch as he builds this. Barclay says this, if the word which was spoken through the medium of the angels proved itself to be certified as valid. That's the idea. It had the stamp of authenticity about it. And God stamped it with his stamp of authenticity. So that what the angels delivered was certified as being valid and from God. Steadfast. The whole Old Testament proved it. That that was the real deal. And their reaction to actually established it because he then goes on and says, and every transgression. Now what was that? That means to step over a line. That's a willful act of sin. Now, you don't need to look far in the Old Testament to find transgression of the law. In fact, before the tablets of stone reached the bottom of the mountain, the law given had been transgressed. And you remember the, the whole incident with the golden calf and the rebellion? And you remember Aaron's pathetic line, you know, he, he threw the gold, all the earrings and whatnot, he threw it all into fire and a golden calf just jumped out. I mean, that's what he says. It's unbelievable. And he just capitulated before the people, and they, they were, it wasn't just the fact that they made a golden calf, there was the whole worship of that golden calf and the immorality that was being practiced round about it. There was a transgression before the tablets of stone reached the bottom and were delivered into the care of the people. And that just set the pattern. Well, what happened when a transgression took place? Not just a transgression, mind you. He says, and disobedience. Now, what is that? Well, if you follow that word study, it's quite interesting. It means imperfect hearing, which I'm accused of having, and everyone in my family has, I think. Imperfect hearing. So the word developed in this way, if you check it out, you'll find this. It began by literally meaning imperfect hearing. But then, as with most words, the word meaning developed with usage over time. It then went on to mean careless hearing. So it started off with imperfect hearing. And then it became careless hearing. 
inattention, which leads to misunderstanding. So you just fail to catch what's said because you're not paying attention. And that leads to misunderstanding. But then it developed again, apparently, so the scholars tell us. And it ended up meaning an unwillingness to hear. And therefore, disobedience to the voice of God. It actually came to mean shutting your ears deliberately to the commands of God. This is the sin of neglect. This is the sin of omission. It's literally shutting your ears so you don't have to do what God says. It would be the equivalent to never opening your Bible. It would be the equivalent to never going to hear the Bible being taught. It would be the equivalent to have no interest in what God's got to say to you from this book, however you access that, whether it's personally in your reading or whether it's someone um, teaching or whether it's you reading or, or listening to whatever. It's the same thing. Because by so doing, you don't let the word go in your ears. Well, in the Old Testament, what happened when that took place? There was a just recompense of reward, he says. So match this. They want to go back to the Old Testament. And he says, listen, back to the Old Testament. Well, you're looking at that through rose-tinted specs. He says, listen, every transgression, every single transgression, and every disobedience received a just recompense of reward. And, for example, Numbers chapter 15 and verse 30 is the most famous one. There's a man wandering about the place picking up some sticks just so happens to be in the Sabbath. What happens to him doesn't end well. Disobedience, transgression, and he's stoned to death. Leviticus 24, verse 14, listen to this. Bring forth him who hath cursed outside the camp. Let all that hurt him lay their hands upon his head and let all the congregation stone him. Because he cursed, stoned to death. Thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel, saying, Whosoever curseth, curseth his God shall bear his sin, and he who blasphemeth the name of the Lord shall be put to death, and all the congregation shall certainly stone him. You see, it's the principle. You transgress. You be disobedient, and there is a just recompense of reward. That's the old covenant. God set the law and God set the punishment. That is why God had to put in place a system of sacrifice and offerings lest his people be destroyed under his righteous wrath and judgment against sin. There were some times that even despite the sacrificial system and by the way, don't please think that the sin offering and the peace offering and the trespass offering uh, and, okay, you could bring a burnt offering, put a meal offering on top of it and then go away and sin deliberately and then come back and offer another sin offering. The sin offering and the trespass offering weren't for deliberate sin, willful sin at all. It was for sins that you had no idea you'd committed and then when you discovered you'd committed them, you then had the opportunity to go and offer sacrifice for them. Have a look at the detail of them. You see, the willful acts of rebellion and transgression and disobedience of the nation of Israel, well, there was an annual dealing with them in the Day of Atonement. But God didn't just set a system of absolution for sin based upon animal sacrifice. That is not the Old Testament system of offering and sacrifice. But what you did have was this. God set up a system a national system so that he could be amongst his people and that the presence of God amongst his people did not destroy his people because of their transgression and their disobedience. That, of course, all pointing forward to the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus. So he comes to verse 3. Now he's taken a look back and said, it's an argument from the lesser to the greater. He said, if that was the case then, what about now? 
How shall we escape? Escape what? Appropriate retribution. If we neglect, this is the Amplified, and refuse to pay attention to such a great salvation as is now offered to us and in danger of drifting past it forever. How shall we escape? If that's what happened to our transgression and that's what happened to disobedience, there was a just recompense of the reward in the Old Testament. Why do we think now in the New Testament that we will just somehow sin at our leisure and escape? How shall we escape? Who's he speaking to? Well, he's speaking to the same group as in verse number one. The people who heard these things, the primary reference to the Jewish people of that period, people who had outwardly left the temple sacrifice, made made a profession of Jesus as their Messiah, their high priest. And now they're being persecuted and, uh, and apostate Judaism is bringing the pressure to bear upon them and they're drifting back to these things. He says, how shall we escape if we, and notice his word, how often have you heard this in the gospel meeting, and rightly so, this warning, how shall we escape if we neglect? Neglect. That means literally to have no concern or care, to be careless. It's actually the opposite word to the expression in chapter, in verse number one, give the more earnest heed. It's the the opposite word. So you have giving the more earnest heed over here, and you have the word neglect over here. They are opposites. So here is the opposite thing, to be careless. How shall we escape what righteous retribution? If we neglect, we are careless about so great salvation. Now, I've heard many a sermon preached about this great salvation. Not just this great salvation, this so great salvation. And that's right enough, it is a great salvation. And there are many ways in which this salvation can be described as great. Great danger, great sacrifice, great deliverance, great blessings, and so on. But that's not actually, really in context, what the greatness of the salvation is referring to. In context, the greatness of the salvation is explained in in the rest of verse 3 and into verse 4. And there are three things that make this salvation great in this context, as opposed to the Old Testament context of the first covenant and the retribution that was brought upon disobedience and upon transgression. Why is this salvation so great? Well, number one, first of all, it was at the first began to be spoken by the Lord. So this didn't come through angels. This came from Jehovah himself. You remember when the Lord Jesus Christ was here, God incarnate. The word became flesh. God himself here on earth. The Lord Jesus was primarily in his public ministry a preacher of the gospel. Everything else was linked to that. He was a preacher. And Luke chapter 4, this is when he began. He came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up and as his custom was, he went in to the synagogue on the Sabbath day. And this is, this is it starting. And he stood up to read. And there was delivered unto him the book of the prophet Isaiah. This is where he'll start. This is where he'll make his announcement. This is when he'll start preaching the gospel. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. And he closed the book and he gave it again to the minister and sat down and the eyes of all of them that were in the synagogue were fastened on him and he began to say unto them. So he's read the scriptures. Now he's going to preach. It's not a very long sermon. This is his message. This day is the scripture fulfilled in your ears. That's it. 
That's a short gospel. Some of us could learn about that. That's a short, pithy, punchy gospel. He's read the scriptures and now he says, these scriptures today are fulfilled right here in me. Which at the first began to be spoken of the Lord. Do you remember Luke chapter 9 verse 22 to 24? He did this right throughout his public ministry. He's speaking and he says, The Son of Man must suffer many things. Talking about himself. And be rejected of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be slain and be raised the third day. He's preaching the cross. He's preaching the resurrection. This is the gospel. And it it first is spoken by the Lord. No one else preached the resurrection at this stage but him. This is the great salvation. And not just the declaration of the fact he will die on the cross at Calvary and be raised again on the third day. He says this, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it. But whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. He's now punching the thing home. Challenging his audience to follow him and respond to what? to the declaration of the cross and the declaration of the resurrection, here is the appeal of the gospel from the words of Christ himself, which at the first began to be spoken of the Lord. Great salvation. Why? (coughs) Principally, number one, here Christ preached it. Jehovah announced it. But not just that. Secondly, notice verse 3. And, see, the second thing, was confirmed unto us. So hold on a minute here. Who are the us? So who confirmed it? That's, see, when you come to verses like this, interrogate the text, ask the questions. So there's a statement here. It was confirmed by whom and how. Unto us, by them that heard. So we now have a who. So the people who are receiving this letter and the person who is writing this letter is saying that they didn't hear the gospel preached by Christ. But those who heard the gospel preached by Christ, they delivered it. And it was confirmed unto us by them that heard. You see, that was the apostolic testimony. Those who had been with Christ and heard Christ, Paul, of course, meeting Christ in resurrection ground, those who were um, to be formal legal witnesses to the resurrection of Christ and stand and bear testimony and do what? And confirm the words of Christ to those who would listen. So now you've got... You've got Apostolic witness being spread here. ESV says, While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his own will. Here's the third thing. So you have the Lord first speaking. Then you've got the confirmation unto us by them that heard. And then in verse number four, God also bearing witness. God also. So you've got Lord Jesus, you've got apostolic testimony, and now you've got God himself bearing witness. So what is this? Well, God bore witness, it tells us, with signs, wonders, various miracles, and gifts of the Holy Spirit. And these, by the way, are given according to his will, not ours. That's developed in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Um, The giving of the the gifts of the Spirit are in no way to do with the recipient of these gifts. It's all to do with God who gives. And so that is there, but it's not expanded. So let's just break this down then. So then, in the first century, the primary purpose of miracles in the life of the Lord and the life of of the early church here in the book of Hebrews was not actually to alleviate distress and suffering. 
the primary purpose. But rather it was to prove that the one performing the miracle spoke or wrote from God. It was God's stamp of confirmation upon the message that was being delivered. Upon what they heard. Now, I haven't just made that up. Um, Actually, when you think about the miracles of the Lord Jesus, they serve that purpose in his life. John chapter 3, verse 2, Nicodemus got it. Lord, we know one thing. Nobody can do the things that you do except God be with him. He got it. Saw the miracles, recognized these miracles meant that God was with him. God was confirming. God's authority was seen. Matthew 11, verse 2 to 5, this is the very point that the Lord Jesus himself referred John the Baptist to when he was in prison and his disciples came to speak to the Lord. And in Matthew 11, verse 2 to 5, the disciples of John are coming because John's not sure is Jesus the Messiah. Now, when John had heard in the prison the works of Christ, the works of Christ, he sent two of his disciples and said unto him, Art thou he that should come, or do we look for another? Jesus answered and said unto them, Go and show John again those things which you do hear and see. It's miracles. In case we're wondering, the blind receive their sight, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the poor have the gospel preached them. He says, go and tell them the things that you've seen. These are the things that are characteristic of the Messiah. God's confirmation, God's stamp of approval upon it. Acts 2 verse 22, the preaching in in Pentecost, ye men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man, what? Approved of God. How? By many miracles and wonders and signs. There we have it. God's stamp of approval upon the ministry of Christ by the miracles that he did. Now, just as miracles attested the authenticity of Christ, so too did they have that purpose in the early days of the church. When there was a transition from what was of God, Judaism, to what was of God in this New Testament gospel. Both were of God. But one is being superseded by the other. One is being set aside. The old is gone and the new is now taking place. And the superiority of the new and principally Christ at the centre of it is the whole reason for the book. And so there needs to be that affirmation from God this was of God. How did he do it? With miracles, signs, wonders. And the apostolic testimony was confirmed in that way. What's a sign? Just as you'd imagine, it's a definition as a sign, marker, token, miraculous in nature. What's the wonder? Something so strange as to cause it to be watched. It's the effect of the sign upon the individual really and being emphasised, and various miracles that um, attributes the miraculous, ex, you know, attributes the miraculous to God explicitly. And gifts of the Holy Spirit, well, these were gifts given by the Spirit of God, um, which were particularly sign gifts, the word sign being important. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 2, speaks about this, because when Paul is writing and he's speaking to the Corinthians and the establishment of the early church in Corinth. He says this, Remember, truly the signs of an apostle were wrought among you in all patience, in signs, wonders, and mighty deeds. These were the signs of an apostle. You get the idea. God's confirmation, God's affirmation of that which was from him. So the apostolic testimony was... The confirmation of the words of Christ confirmed by the apostles and God also bearing witness. Romans 15 verse 19. Through mighty signs and wonders by the power of the Spirit of God so that from Jerusalem and round about Illyricum I have fully preached the gospel of Christ. Again Paul says the signs of an apostle were there when I preached the gospel. You see well I didn't think that the gifts of the Holy Spirit, particularly these sign gifts of the Holy Spirit, were for that purpose. I thought they were for the upbuilding of the church. I thought they were for the 
uh, I thought they were for the believers. No, they're not for the believers at all. These sign gifts, particularly tongues, in 1 Corinthians 14, verse 22, explicitly it says, and tongues are not for a sign to them that believe, but for a sign to them that believe not. They were explicitly for unbelievers, not believers. The point, the bigger point is this, because he's not going to develop the whole idea of spiritual gifts here, but it's the idea of confirmation in those early days. That's the point in the passage. So let's draw it all together. Here's the challenge, because it's a warning. And the warning is, give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard. Don't slip by them. Because remember this, that if the word spoken by angels, that which was steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just recompense of reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great salvation? And it is a great salvation. It was spoken first by the Lord. It was confirmed by them that heard him. God also bearing witness by the miraculous. It is a great salvation. And if you are a Christian, and you have heard and responded, then take the challenge of it as well about the things that we have heard. That we do not do what we challenge unbelievers not to do. That we don't let the things slip and us leave it behind. That it has an effect upon us. And surely... Surely, the word of God must have its effect. Or have we become so familiar? Have I become so familiar with his word that I really have no interest in it, no respect for it, and I simply am not interested to hear it or read it or think about it? What effect is it having in our lives? I think, you know, that warning section as we continue our studies in Hebrew would be a good reference point to keep coming back to, just to keep coming back to. As you reflect upon what we are learning as we go, as I am doing the study and as I'm imparting it to you, the same applies for me as we're reflecting on what we're learning through this study. What effect is this going to have upon us as Christians? We trust that it will have a beneficial effect.